Welcome to the Business Fights AIDS podcast. I'm Ben Plumley, and this is episode three, Breakfast. In the first two episodes of Business Fights AIDS, we met the scrappy bunch of partners that had come together to mobilize the global business response to AIDS. That included the US foreign policy giant, Richard Holbrook. It included Bill Rohde from MTV and Peter Piot from UNAIDS, as well as the small team I was putting together to create the Global Business Council on HIV and AIDS. In this episode, the diaries I wrote at the time cover what makes up the parts of an effective business response to AIDS, HIV testing in particular. I quickly learned to trust Holbrook's instinct, with one huge exception. Like many in the global intelligence and foreign affairs communities, Holbrook believed at the start of the millennium that the AIDS epidemic could only be ended by compulsory HIV testing. He thought that the voluntary counselling and testing strategies promoted by the public health sector were woefully insufficient, to put it mildly. I write in my diaries that he says... He thinks these strategies are bollocks. Now, I'm not sure if he actually used those words, though. Ambassador Jack Chow, who was then Bush's global AIDS ambassador, wrote a short feature in Foreign Policy after Holbrook died in 2011 with a group of people who had worked with him, including Carl Bildt, Robert Kaplan, and Peter Galbraith. Jack is now professor at Carnegie Mellon University Heinz College, Holbrook and I worked closely with Jack in my two years at the GBC on how to engage the private sector when the Global Fund to Fight AIDS, TB and Malaria was being established. In his contribution to the foreign policy feature, Jack writes that Holbrook had an uncanny knack for zeroing in on conventional wisdom, and he relentlessly questioned underlying assumptions if he believed them to be off-track. My God! Was Jack right about that? And I bore the brunt of Holbrook's questioning as it related to the AIDS response. You see, back in 2001, Holbrook's position was stark. He said everyone must be tested. The negative ones go over here and use condoms, and the positive ones go over there and get treatment. Epidemic ended. But by 2005, Holbrook supported and indeed led calls for HIV testing to be opt-out. That is to say that those who faced serious stigma and discrimination, or who were not ready, or who were not comfortable being tested, could opt out of testing. And by 2007, the WHO embraced a version of the opt-out testing strategy as policy. And I fully supported that decision. Now, I don't know if Holbrook's position actually evolved from 2001 to 2005. I'm fairly certain I never changed his mind, and he never changed my mind. My mind was changed by science, by new rapid diagnostic technologies and critically access to treatment. That changed everything. I had to fight Holbrook constantly for the two years I worked with him, not to promote mandatory testing with businesses. His enthusiasm for it was absolutely terrifying to me, to Peter Piot, to Georgia Arnold, and to pretty much everyone in the business response to AIDS movement. 
He realized that the business community was not responsive to his testing beliefs, and so he diluted them while we recruited new members, certainly for the two years that I worked for him. And it was certainly true at the turn of the century that the science about HIV diagnostics was evolving really substantially to allow us to adapt our HIV testing strategies. Ironically, after disagreeing about so much on existing HIV testing approaches, Holbrook and I found ourselves coming together on embryonic ideas for opt-out strategies, much to our mutual surprise and amusement. I reread the Holbrook 2005 Washington Post editorial that Jack Chow refers to in his foreign policy piece, and I attach it in the notes to this podcast. It's an important read. I know I am one of the human rights activists Holbrook refers to that questioned his own questioning of the uh, public health status quo. But his essential belief that we could test our way out of the epidemic does not really seem to alter much from 2001. So, in January 2002, my diary records that we met for breakfast in a fancy Manhattan Hotel's restaurant just below Central Park. And this was one of the only few occasions when I had to tell him he was wrong. Fourteenth of January, two thousand and two. Holbrook has invited me here at the start of the year, apparently to his favorite hotel for breakfast meetings, to prepare the work ahead of us. We are to run through his list of priorities. He has no notes. Either he has an incredible memory, or the list is very short. I dive in and preempt Holbrook. Richard, we need to talk about HIV testing. He looks at me tartly. I have interrupted his flow, but needs must. I know exactly what I'm about to say, as I have rehearsed for this moment. Preventing Holbrook from employing the GBC as a public vehicle for compulsory HIV testing is the most important thing I have to do during my secondment from UNAIDS. However, the tone of what actually comes out of my mouth is not quite as calculating or as distanced as I want it to be. Compulsory testing is not going to work. It drives the epidemic underground, and it gives you less, not more information about what is happening. And it is an abuse of human rights. North Korea is the only country that claims not to have any HIV, and we both know how accurate that is. People at risk simply will not show up for testing particularly the leaders in government and the military and business, and they are as much at risk as everybody else, if not more. And what will you do if we do not test? Break into our homes with a nurse and test us then and there? Stand over us as we have sex, or have babies, or shoot up? Fundamentally, this is as much about who we are and what we do, whether we are the security community, the public health movement, or AIDS activists. It is absolutely not about what people in authority tell us to do. And so the job of the business response to AIDS is to invite and support our people to consider how we protect ourselves, whether we are in fact positive or negative or somewhere in between the two. Yes, testing can be offered to everyone, 
And yes, then people can decide whether or not to proceed safely and without risk of punishment or persecution. But what you and I say must help the business community to create environments where it is safe and useful for employees and dependents to know their status. There is no point taking the HIV test if the process of getting the test, let alone getting the results, is going to make it easier for the government, the company, or the community to discriminate against people. We must say to governments, don't create and implement punitive laws. Stay out of our way. And if you want to help, break down the barriers of stigma and discrimination if you can. I'm going to flag up to you again Gugu Dlamini, who was murdered in 1998 after announcing her HIV status on the radio. She is important. Her death tells us what happens if we don't tackle the discrimination and the violence faced by people with HIV. Community testing rides on the crest of that all-damaging, all-destroying wave of hatred and fear, and we will absolutely no way will we be able to control it, and HIV will spread unchecked. Also, if you call out for mandatory HIV testing, you are going to fail, we are going to fail, in recruiting businesses to join us. They will run from us, and they will be absolutely right to do so. We will be toxic, and it will create the most massive opposition against us, not only from the AIDS activists, but much more importantly, from the people inside companies who have spent the last decade working on the inside to do the right thing. They are calling out to us to support them. I stop. I'm feeling a bit embarrassed, and I think my performance became too emotional too quickly. I was not in control of that outburst. He looks at me, as if he is reflecting. There is almost a smile in his eyes. Not quite, though, I think. My notes, taken after the meeting, record that he said the following. You're right, Ben, but that is not the full picture. If we don't get ahead of this epidemic, it is going to destroy the fabric of many countries in southern Africa. You keep telling me that you are so concerned about Zimbabwe. Well, what is happening across its border in Botswana? HIV rates have skyrocketed. What happens if Botswana loses so many leaders that it cannot govern itself? What if all those countries lose the ability to govern themselves? And not only Africa. Asia is at incredible risk. We cannot let that happen. And the security of our country is tied to the stability of their countries. What happens to a miner in South Africa directly affects what happens to a steel worker in Ohio. And this is bigger than public health. You people have shown you can't handle this. So ending AIDS demands a dramatically larger scale of leadership and financing which we cannot trust the public health community to manage. The solution may or may not be testing, but calling for aggressive testing forces the hands of the real people in charge to act, not the ministries of health. Leave this to the ministries of health and AIDS destroys us. He also says, you are right about discrimination, but we need presidential action. This has to come from the top. And we have to tell people that AIDS kills, it's not about hugging or kissing and pretending that we love each other. It must be about making sure people have the information and they act on it. Don't sugarcoat it. AIDS kills. We must say that. And we need to get HIV treatment to people. 
I've always said that, and there is no excuse for inaction. We need global access to treatment now. You cannot test if they don't have ready access to treatment. This will only work if we have access to treatment. After all that, he then rather surprises, well, frankly, underwhelms me with his big plan for the next six months, that we need to organise a gala event in New York that summer, raise the profile of our work to a wholly different level. Well, what does he mean? A dinner and dance? I think of the TV series Dynasty. Yes, a gala dinner sounds very dynasty. Or Viennese, isn't there an annual Christmas gala with women wearing large gowns and tiaras? And aren't there horses, and maybe the Vienna Boys Choir? Recordings of these might be played on BBC Two sometime during off-peak hours over the Christmas period, I can't recall. But how peculiar. We fight stigma and discrimination in the workplace by holding a dinner and dance. Is he out of his mind? I say, okay. And he rattles off a few names that I've never heard of and tells me to call them. AB has their numbers. From what I can glean from him, it is commonplace to use gala dinners to raise money and to invite people you want to influence. These things can generate significant unrestricted funds as well as generating huge publicity. Everyone will want to be there. Every company will want to join us. I nod as sagely as I can. A dinner and dance? But I have to change the subject again. I have not finished. I have to raise the promise I made to the medical director of a South African mining company at the end of last year that Holbrook visits South Africa. So I say that he really, really needs to go to South Africa now. He needs to use the power of his profile to shine a light on how people are affected, positive, negative, rich or poor, and support what the activists and companies are actually doing in the absence of government leadership. I cannot think of a bigger fuck you to the AIDS denialists than Holbrook visiting. I say that. And he does chuckle. Let me check with Carty. Carty, Carty Martin, is his wife. I have met her. To call her an accomplished writer and journalist would be an understatement. She recently wrote Hidden Power about the role of first ladies in setting and implementing the policy agenda of US presidents. You cannot put the book down. It is a tantalizing teaser of what Holbrook, in some form or other of senior office, would look like. And you get the sense, on some other level, that he does exactly what she tells him to. And she writes really well. As we leave each other, he says, You can do this, Ben. You know that, right? I don't know why he says that. What did I give away? But I thank him and say in my best English accent that it is an absolute honour to work for and with him. He then vanishes into a black Lincoln town car that has just appeared, and I snuggle down into the upturned collar of my coat and walk back to Times Square. It is later now. I'm writing all of this down in my nice, neat Italic handwriting at night. In the tiny split-level basement and ground-floor apartment, I am renting in somewhere called Chelsea, on 21st Street, between 7th and 8th Avenues. I am next door to a police station, 
They were some of the first responders to 9-11, and I think some of their people were killed in the collapse of the towers. People come by with gifts. My mother, when she visited at the end of last year, she gave them a gift. I can't remember what exactly. Maybe something from Armistice Day, like a big encrusted poppy pin from the people of Ringwood in Hampshire, in honour of everything that the police station did on that day and the days afterwards, and how grateful their English countryside cousins are of their service. Now, would they please eliminate what Americans call critters crawling inside my son's walls? It's disgusting. Yes, ma'am. Right away, ma'am. Tonight, I can hear mice, or worse, cockroaches, scuttling up and down inside the walls. It gives me the creeps. But worse, through the flimsy partition wall at the back of the basement area, where my bed and desk are, I can hear my young landlord and his girlfriend having sex loudly, very loudly. And to think, people pay a premium to live in this city. I am trying to distract myself from what Holbrook and I talked about. There is one conversation I have not yet recorded. Holbrook is like nature. He abhors a vacuum. There is one occasion when he just stops talking and just looks at me. I know that I have to fill the silence he left so obviously, so I blurt it out. I am not HIV positive. I am negative. I surprise myself. Where on earth did that come from? Yet he nods and tilts his head slightly to the side. Yes, I agree. It is in a way unfortunate. Just think of the advocacy power we would have if our executive director was HIV positive. No, no, he says, perhaps too rapidly. Interesting. I immediately wonder if I have caught him off guard. But no, it strikes me that he has obviously been thinking about this. He was certain I would go the other way. He was expecting me to say that I am HIV positive. But he gathers up steam, barely skipping a beat and says, This is another example of you public health people getting the language completely wrong. If you have contracted the worst virus to hit humanity in modern times, it is positive. If you haven't, it is negative. That is absurd. What does it tell people? This language is wrong, completely wrong, and you need to change that. I have to agree with him, about the language that is. I am not sure that there is much I can do about it. To make sense or at least some sense of today's confusing conversation, it is probably a good time as any to explain my own very personal brush with HIV. It makes me as sceptical as Holbrook about current strategies in HIV testing, as well as the capacity of health services to defeat pandemics like HIV on their own. Unlike Holbrook, I feel exceptionally strongly that testing is no panacea for ending the AIDS epidemic, it is a tool for individuals. But honestly, we have to make the following the priority. Defeating stigma and discrimination, denialism in all its forms, and building community leadership, education, and above all trust. And the biomedical intervention that makes these things possible is HIV treatment. Although Holbrook is a supporter of these things, he does not think that they are as important as testing. And this is where he and I part ways somewhat. It doesn't help that my experience of HIV testing is from the early to mid-1990s. 
It's not just that the old-fashioned diagnostic technology was glacially slow in getting you the results. You did not promote HIV testing because getting an HIV test was not wise. It was dangerous. If insurers, mortgage companies, and employers found out, you could lose your insurance, lose your house, be refused a mortgage if you wanted to buy a new house, lose your job. You would be toast. Regardless of your HIV status, it was the act of getting an HIV test that put you at risk. So, the best way to find out if you had HIV and you were going to die would be by dying. And you should practice safe sex in the meantime. That is what I believed. I dated someone in the early 90s who, during the course of our relationship, tested HIV positive. So, I too slogged my way to the sexually infectious disease clinic at Guy's Hospital close to the London Bridge British Rail Station, I think it might still have been gloriously called the Venereal Disease Clinic. Clap Clinic was a name many of us also used. I was heavily counselled. Counselling as sedation. Was I sure I wanted to take the test? What had brought me in to be tested? Ah, well, yes, a positive partner. Did I want to talk about whether we were still sexually active? How did I feel about describing that sex? Did I feel that this sex had included any acts that might have put me at risk of HIV? I foolishly told the counsellor that I have Crohn's disease, which is a chronic disease of autoimmune dysfunction and which can affect any part of you, but which particularly affects my lower and upper intestines and my joints. She asked me if I would excuse her for a moment. She returned and said, would I mind speaking with the head of the department? When we had finished up, could he come in and chat with me about HIV and Crohn's disease? Yes, I said. And so in he came, Dr. H., the head of the department. He asked me more questions about my condition, and asked me if I would let the clinic contact the gastroenterology clinic that treated my Crohn's disease for further discussion. I knew that this was an appalling idea, and that my friends and the volunteers I worked with at the Terence Higgins Trust would advise very, very strongly against this. But I said yes, why not? You see, Dr. H said, we don't really understand what happens with HIV-positive people who have Crohn's disease. We want to make sure you get the best possible care. I noted to myself that I'd not taken the HIV test at this point. The doctor and the counsellor seemed to be making an assumption, however fair that assumption was given the information I had shared and this made me sweat and feel faint. I went to see a nursing technician who drew my blood, and then I went back to see the counsellor in her office. And she sighed, okay then, and she smiled at me. And then she said, at this point it may be safest to assume that your immune system has been exposed to HIV. We will get the results back in about three weeks. If these results come back positive, we will take it from there. If they come back negative, well, don't make any assumptions about anything, least of all that you are actually negative. We will take another test in a few months, and then we will know for sure. So, between now and then, it will be a very strange time for you. You won't know if you are one thing or another. You may experience mood swings, but if you feel anything abnormal at all, night sweats, blurred vision, dizziness, anything at all, I want you to contact us right away. Is that okay? Also, it is up to you if you have sex with other people or your partner during this time, but we urge you to use condoms at all times. Here is a bag of condoms for you. We have plenty more in reception. 
Take those. We have a lot of them, too many in fact. And if you'd like to give some to your friends, that would really help us too. We are running out of places to store them. They keep sending condoms to us and we don't know where to put them. And avoid oral sex if you can. And if you can't, please use a condom, although I know that will draw attention to yourself in ways you may not want. I mentioned that we have lots of condoms. Right, I did, yes. But do feel free to take as many as you like. We can also connect you with more in-depth counselling and support services. She said that this was a lot to take in, and just to let her know if I had any questions or worries at all. She gave me a piece of paper with her direct-to-office telephone number. I fumbled with it in my fingers, and God damn it, I was not going to call her, not in a million years. As we both got up to leave the counselling room, she reminded me not to forget my condoms, and that I could take with me the box of tissues which I had seemed to be using voraciously these last few minutes. In fact, I did call her a week or so later. Some very strange little lumps had started to appear inside me. I could feel them. There were some in my rectum, and there were some I could sense much higher in my intestines. The GI and STI clinics fought it out over who should treat me, and I recall spending two nights in a ward in Guy's Hospital, which must have meant that the Clap Clinic won that round. It could have been a Crohn's flare, and it could also have been evidence of a rapid, roaring immune response, like my immune system was being challenged, like in an HIV kind of way. But all lumps and things were removed, and yes, I was right. Some from very deeply inside me, I had to go under general anaesthetic for this procedure. So I spent another two days of discomfort close to the lavatory in my apartment, and someone, not the counsellor or Dr. H, called me and told me that some lumps were cancerous and others were precancerous polyps. But not to worry. The doctor would talk to me about it, and they had all been removed. Shouldn't I have some cancer therapy, I asked? Well, this is something the doctor will discuss with you, was the reply. I was called into the counsellor's office at the Guy's Clap Clinic, the results of the HIV test had also come back with a preliminary negative diagnosis. However, the counsellor said I was not to read too much into that. Much more significant was the peculiar immunological response I seemed to be having, and Dr. H wondered whether some kind of pronounced seroconversion was going on. This happened with people who have recently been infected with HIV, she said. I knew that seroconversion meant that my immune system was trying to put up an admirable but ultimately pointless fight against HIV. I was offered group counselling, absolutely not, no thank you, essential oils, meditation to whale song, and acupuncture. Not really my thing. I did go once to a support group for people who have been recently diagnosed with HIV, and I felt such a fraud. Other group members talked about how they were going to give their individual T-cells names when AIDS destroyed their immune system and they only had a few left. They were going to call them Frankie or Kylie. On the other hand, mine actually might be an advancing horde destroying everything in their path. Maybe I should call one of them Genghis Khan. But which one? Other members in the group were looking forward to getting Kaposi sarcoma lesions deep purple clots on the skin and also inside that people with AIDS got. They could then join the dots between them and see what the resulting picture looked like. One person said they hoped the picture would be a huge penis and hairy testicles. 
the curiously dark humour of people facing their own mortality, I marvelled. But what was I laughing at? I started getting terrible insomnia at this time, which has never left me. But I did fall asleep listening to Whale Song in a group session. We were all lying on the floor and someone started snoring. Aromatherapy had no effect. On the other hand, I spent Friday and Saturday nights at a small sweaty gay nightclub, The Phoenix, dancing to Army of Lovers and Hazel Dean. Curiously, most other gay clubs in London did not play pop music. It was beneath them. There was no pet shop boys to be had on the dance floor for love nor money. However, I felt the bass and the melodies of these pop songs pierced me deeply in ways I don't think those other things could ever do. And as the crowded dance floor shared these experiences of tones and beats, I felt community, not loneliness. Sometime later, I let the guy's nurse draw a second vial of blood, and I waited. I have no idea how long. I just lost track of time. I just worked and waited, worked and waited. Eventually, I was called back to the counsellor's room. I asked my friend SC to join me. We would have a drink at one of the local gay pubs in and around London Bridge, regardless of the result. It's good to have a plan for all sorts of occasions. This time, I walked into the counselling room, and there she was before me. The counsellor, and she had a big smile to greet me. That alarmed me, I confess. I feared that this meant I was positive, that she had caught another one. But no, she was very gracious. She said this must have been a horrid, horrid time for me. Now, just to check, I hadn't had high-risk sex, had I? Had I got pregnant? Yes, I know, she said, but they were required to ask that of everyone, so just ticking the box, she would assume no, bear with. Had I shared needles, anything that might have put me at risk at all? No, I whispered. Then we can say that this episode of your life is over. You are negative, she said, and they had yet more supplies of condoms in the reception. Please would I take as many as I liked. I need to say something about the counsellor. She had a very firm, rounded out, and beautiful face, and you knew you could be straight up with her, and she would be straight up with you. It was reassuring to have the sense that she could punch the shit out of you if you got on the wrong side of her. To me, she looked a lot, and she behaved a lot, like the Terence Higgins Trust policy person. I saw her in action at the Trust's offices fairly frequently those days, kicking the proverbial butt out of misbehaving AIDS activists, mostly the desperate and offensive AIDS denialist group Gays Against Genocide. I formed a chick-like awe and dependence on this policy manager, as if she was the first AIDS activist I had ever seen. She wasn't. I knew John Campbell very well, and I had just met Julian Howes, two other giants in the British AIDS world. But she, and this counsellor, captured the essence of the mind and the heart of what the AIDS response should be, at least for me. People I spoke with afterwards, who knew both of them, said that they looked nothing alike. But that's my memory. That's how it was for me. That evening, I felt negative. SC saw me coming into the reception, and he looked worried. I smiled wanly, and I said, It's okay, it's okay. I tested negative. There were other people in the reception room and they looked up. It had been as quiet as a church and they were uncomfortable. They were annoyed that I was speaking. We left rapidly and we forgot the condoms. So yes, 
I was negative, and I still am. Just a few weeks ago, somebody asked me why aren't I out about my HIV status. I had to explain that I am not HIV positive. I am HIV negative. It really surprised them. The local gay pub wouldn't let me in because of its dress code. I was still wearing my work suit. SC was fine. He already had a leather jacket on. Well, that just summed up my life to that point. So fast forward to 2002. A lot has changed since the early 90s. Diagnostics have improved considerably. And yet, Holbrook's words rattle around my head. Everybody must be tested. The negative ones go over here and use condoms, and the positive ones go over there and get treatment. Epidemic ended. Well, no, that's not right. Not by a long shot. The Business Fights Aids podcast was written and narrated by Ben Plumley. It is produced in association with Lato Beave Resources, producer of Posi, a pan-African design clothing brand specializing in the use and redesign of Ankara and other African fabrics. The Business Fights Aids podcast is directed and produced by Eric Espera of Newsdoc Media, and the digital producer is Troy Espera. The Business Fights Aids podcast is a project of the Icana Health Action Lab.